This is Inspiring Women. I'm Lori McGraw. Thanks for tuning in. Every week I talk to exceptional women about what's going on in technology or business or innovation. And this week I wanted to talk about the jobs landscape. We know that year over year, the number of job openings has significantly declined. We also know that historically we're at high levels for quitting, not quiet quitting, the real type of quitting. And that's especially true for women who are mid-career. So I wanted to speak to Deb Bubb. She is a healthcare HR executive. She'd work, she's worked at major organizations like United and Optum. And she talks about what it takes to build keeping employees an inclusive culture that still remains the most important thing. I also asked her some of the age old questions that listeners have, which include, how do I ask for a raise? She gives great advice. Again, Lori McGraw, Inspiring Women, please do subscribe to hear more of these exceptional stories. But now let's hear from Deb Bubb. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Deb Bubb. She is a many-year executive in the area of human resources. She's been the chief talent officer for both Optum, United Health Group. Um, she's an uh, executive who's worked at all different facets of human resources. And why I think that's so important, we are hearing all this news of in 2023, we've got layoffs, we have women dropping out of the workforce you know, after many years of productive work. And so I collected a couple of questions from listeners, which I'm going to be excited to ask Deb as she can give advice to so many people out there as they're exploring what's next for themselves in their careers. And Deb, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Well, Lori, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation and get to know you and our and our listeners. All right. All right. Well, let's just dive in. Um, in Inspiring Women, I, I want to talk about two things. One, your expertise, but also a bit about you. How did you get here? How did you become the executive that you are um, after so many years working with some of the largest organizations, IBM, United Health Group, Optum? So Deb, a little bit, what does what your day-to-day -day look like and a little bit about your career trajectory? Yeah, you bet. Well, today my day-to-day -day is made up of uh, a really different kind of work. I've been doing consulting and uh, board advising, which is a new way of working for me. And it's been incredibly fun, filled with lots of exploration and learning and really sharing with other teams and organizations some of the experiences from my prior work life. Um, I'm also a busy mom of, tween, of twin <laughs> teenagers who are getting ready to go into high school. So that keeps me busy. Um, Yikes. <laughs> well, they, they really, they're just an incredible opportunity for me um, to learn about what's relevant to people today and how the world is changing around us and what it looks like to young people. They ask some of my most difficult questions. I will tell you that. <laughs> um but before that, like I started, you know, my career really thinking about human transformation from the very beginning. Um, I grew up as largely the you know child of a single parent. My mom was constantly moving from job to job, apartment to apartment, um, trying to get a slightly better job, a slightly closer babysitter, a slightly better school for my brother and me. And um, you know, when she remarried, our lives continued that pattern. And I saw up close and personal 
what grit and growth mindset look like. I, I also saw the challenges of trying to make a career when maybe you don't have all of the privilege or benefits other people might have um, with whom you're competing for opportunities and roles. And I saw what it might have meant to have slightly more support or processes that were clearer and more transparent, a hand up, not a, you know, hand, hand out kind of. And um it inspired me from the you know kind of beginning of my career to think about how could I use my you know sort of energy to make work work better for people to help people thrive. I got curious about what creates the conditions where some people face adversity and really thrive and lean into it and have great things happen, and other people face adversity and it it things just don't work out and. Um, that exploration led me to study psychology and women's studies as my sort of foundational academic career. I got a master's degree in social work, and I spent some time working on human transformation in the context of a clinical career. Mm-hmm. I learned over time by doing some coaching and some consulting that I could also apply that same passion and interest in the corporate context. And when I could make a difference for a corporate leader, I could not only influence one family, but many thousands of families. I could affect systemic change in a way that made an even bigger difference. And so I decided to really take on in full a life dedicated to making work work better for people. I've done that in many technology companies. I was at Intel for nearly 17 years. Uh, I was at IBM for many years as their chief leadership learning and inclusion officer. I went to uh, United Health Group as chief talent officer and then became the chief people officer at Optum. And in each of those spaces, I feel like, you know, the real focus of my work was creating the leadership, the culture, the diverse, inclusive, and equitable kind of context that would allow people to do their life's best work. So that's what I've dedicated my life to and happy to share a little bit about what I've learned in that context with you today. Well, that background, that background in terms of sort of like where you grew up and how you grew up um, with, and I like that sort of grit and growth mindset that you commented on. Um, but also it's just strikes me that it probably gives you um, a level of uh, continuous empathy um, for circumstances in terms of what must be hundreds of thousands of people who you had the opportunity to shape or impact their career trajectories, you know, how they work. Culture is such a big part of large organizations, whether they thrive or are going through challenging times. And there's so much change happening in the workforce right now. We're coming out of the pandemic. We've had, you know, remote work. We have now, whether it's quiet quitting or or quiet firing as people require, companies are requiring uh, talent to come back to the office, whether they want to or not. There's a lot to talk about here, Deb. But as we do, um, just in terms of that um, career trajectory, it's mainly technology types of companies that you've um, been involved in and a lot of healthcare in that background. So that's where I want to focus. We certainly know that in the world of big tech right now, um, it's only March, over 100,000 folks have lost their job jobs in the area of big tech. Facebook is announcing the next 10,000 um, uh, folks who will be laid off. So what's happening?
happening. We've seen sort of a big shift um, in terms of employees seemingly having all of the power, if you will, negotiation power, to now companies are really buckling down. Give us a, your view of the current landscape for employment in the area of tech as well as healthcare. Yeah, it's an incredible time of challenge and opportunity. And for many, I think it's the first time facing one of these big cycles. Um, you know, the last time I remember going through something this kind of systemic and profound, other than the pandemic itself, was in 2008 when we faced the correction um, that resulted in a major period of challenge for the economy. Before that, 1999 and the telecom sort of fiasco. Um, you know, look, I, I think it's a time to sort of think in terms of the macro environment and the kind of context in which we're working, where I think both things you said are true. I think on the talent side of the equation, there is a huge amount of scarcity in the technical and other skills needed to make these large organizations work. We just don't have enough talent to do the work that needs to be done. And I, I think it's an important time for people who are seeking opportunities to be selective and thoughtful about where they want to use their skills for good, um, what companies really align to their values and are really committed to their wholesome growth throughout their career, not just this transaction, this particular job, but you know, is this a place where I can see myself continuing to grow and who's committed to my career growth and development and skill acquisition? On the other hand, you know, companies, I think, are in a macro environment where growth is hard to call. The supply chain is really broken and we're trying to figure out how to navigate with much higher interest rates and much more emphasis on performance guiding investment rather than just potential or upside growth. And you know, needing to be really thoughtful about our innovation pipeline and our, our plans to scale and grow in a different way. And so I think, think some of these corrections are really the reinstatement of fundamental disciplines in the business. The question I would be asking myself, you know, as a person being part of the tech industry is, do I see congruence between what my organization is saying and what it's doing? In other words, are these layoffs simply, you know, sort of high level, you know, cuts that are not accompanied by um, sort of corresponding changes in our commitment to skill development, automation, prioritization, streamlining? You know, are we really aligning our innovation pipeline and our projects with the headcount plans we just made? Or did we just cut jobs and are expecting everybody to dig in and do more with less? Is there a real plan here? And I think, you know, in companies that are taking a more stewardship approach, who are, you know, making tough decisions, realigning their innovation pipeline and setting themselves up for good, consistent growth, um, I think employees will find themselves in places that come out of this healthier and more whole. Is loyalty dead? I mean, if you think about, you know, certainly, I mean, in, there are obvious differences between, you know, generations. Um, and so it seems that the younger generations, the number of job changes that are just consistent with a, an age demographic, whether it's Gen Z, Gen, uh, Gen X, whatever, um, it's just a couple of years versus older folks who are going to be in a position five and six years. 
is loyalty dead for companies? What and how important really is culture? You know, in the context of you know, we've been in remote work for the past two plus years. Sometimes we're coming back. Sometimes we're in hybrid. What's your thought about that from both the company perspective as well as what you might advise to people who are you know thinking about a career change? And it seems just based on the statistics, everybody's thinking about a career change in one way or way, shape, or form. Yeah, well, I think loyalty is earned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I like that. If if companies benefit from a consistent, well-trained, um, loyal and, and culturally consistent workforce, if that's actually part of your business strategy, um, then you're going to benefit from talent strategies that support loyalty. And those talent strategies that support loyalty look like really basic things, like having empathetic leaders, having inclusive behaviors, investing in career growth and development for your people, having consistency and fairness in your approach to promotions and pay and you know the core elements of of the contract between employees and employers, you know, positive employee relations, all of those things earn loyalty. And, you know, when I think about, you know, people being committed to uh, their own growth and wanting to make a change every year or two that grows their career, I don't see why that's not possible in some of these large corporations where people can have entire careers. I mean, I was at Intel 17 years. I did nearly every kind of job in HR. I was explicitly developed to grow beyond, you know, strategic business HR roles into HR operations roles, where I got exposure to running call centers and uh, learning about technology implementations that I would have never had the opportunity to do in another place. And, you know, later into an OD role and a leadership and culture, you know, I got to do many lifetimes of work in a large company. I stayed there because Intel was loyal to me and I was loyal to Intel. Mm-hmm. At some point, my need to grow, my desire to grow outpaced what Intel was able to provide. And I had really transparent conversations with my mentors, my boss about that. It wasn't a disloyalty move. It was a recognition on both of our parts that I was ready to grow. And there wasn't really a spot that met my needs. It wasn't a disloyal choice. I I think, I think there are many ways to frame loyalty that continue to provide the opportunity to stretch and grow and be challenged. I, I don't think it's true that younger people or people who are earlier in their careers are demonstrating disloyalty by moving. I think they may be being loyal to growth and holding us accountable as large employers to the quality of the employment experience we're creating. Yeah, I think um, just so I uh, agree with that. And also, I think the best leaders in terms of both the you know, ones that I've had very on teams or I've had as managers and leaders um, that I've worked for are always helping you get to the next place, next place. And that next place might not be still within the company or whatever. And some of the, I I think sort of the mark of great leaders is when their people that they've grown are well beyond whether it's that that particular organization um, or demonstrating their leadership somewhere else. So I really agree with those comments, Deb. Let's talk I about remote. I would yeah. say I would just add one more thought to that. You know, I was in a conversation with a leader last week, two weeks ago, maybe, who said, um, 
You know, Deb, if I have to lay people off, I mean, sometimes it's a it's a business requirement. I mean, sometimes there's just no other way when our it isn't because we're not performing. It's because the market we're in does not bear the growth that we've planned. And, you know, we have to make a decision to reduce. Um, But when I have to make that decision, I think about every family I'm impacting and I hold it as a personal failure. I have to sit and, and think about what I learned from that and ensure it never happens again. And I thought that's the kind of stewardship I think we want out of our leaders, leaders who take people's growth, the the family impact of work in their lives, the, the, the sort of stewardship of a company's value proposition around its people very, very seriously. That's where I want to spend my life working, you know, mm-hmm. this for someone who thinks about my growth, my family, the impact of, of what they're doing as a leader on the whole community. So let's talk about um, for employees who are, you know, in their jobs and growing their careers, um, you know, sort of some of the things that people generally, in my view, want to work, want to work hard, want to make an impact in what they're doing and be rewarded for it. I mean, that's just, I think, broad brush what what I see in all people, this idea that people are not working hard. um, I haven't seen it. But anyway, in terms of growing your career, um, remote work. Uh, So, you know, people have had the opportunity to choose whether to do remote work. Now they might not have that opportunity. What are your thoughts about remote work? Is that a good idea for somebody who wants to aspire for growth in their particular career? Look, I I think we've been part of a, a huge experiment. I mean, who would have thought, you know, prior to the pandemic that we would be able to instantly shift so many jobs to full remote capacity and thrive. I mean, many people, um, despite the long held assumptions about the challenges of remote work and its horrible impact, potentially horrible impact on culture and performance and productivity, you know, we actually did pretty well with everyone shifting to remote um, for a period of time. I think long-term, it it takes a more thoughtful analysis on um, the kind of uh, role you're in, uh, the extent to which collaboration and incidental contact are helpful toward getting work done, the um, place you are in your career and the health and strength of your network, you know, an assessment of the actual job and your actual readiness and what you actually need to thrive. I think it takes careful analysis of both of those things. And rarely is the answer all yes or all no. Um, For myself, you know, when I think about, I, I have had really great experiences being able to have very close collaborative relationships with people all around the world and do very, um, you know, sort of, I think healthy and and even more powerful distributed work because of the way the tools for remote work have improved over the years. It's just a completely different thing to be able to have this kind of face-to-face connection using this kind of technology that enables remote work today. Um, However, I also have had incredible experiences coming back to the workplace and being able to sit face-to-face with people in a room and experience all that we're you know, sort of designed to experience as, you know, 
old beings. We're old beings who are designed to appreciate social engagement. Almost everyone I've talked to who's come back for their first face-to-face -face interview, their first you know, conference where they're, you know, with a lot of people in person has said, oh my God, I forgot how great it feels to be with other human beings. And so I think that sort of can't be underestimated. And it hasn't worn off yet. I think that, you know, I'm still hearing that from every sort of interaction or conference I go to in terms of that just like genuine excitement for the human connection. But we're in a situation where many, we have many employees who are remote. They're remote um, by designation in terms of their jobs or they're in, they're in a hybrid situation for other parts in the same company. So if you're one of those people who is, remote or hybrid while there's other parts of your team and the workforce who's in the office, what advice do you give to those people so that they too are considered for promotion opportunities, plum assignments, those types of things? Because again, statistics and studies are showing that those people are at a bit of a deficit um, in terms of those types of opportunities. Yeah. And I think there's a potentially massive impact to us in our overall talent pipeline when we have a whole generation of folks who have not been able to experience the regular incidental learning and network building opportunities, opportunities to learn by observation. Um, you know, I mean, that whole that whole group of employees, I think we're, we're going to have to think carefully about how we bring them into the fold and continue to ensure their appropriate development I, I think they also may have an advantage in terms of building remote skills that other leaders don't. So it's going to be really about thinking about what are the skills required for a future talent pipeline. For people who are in that position, though, I think there are really important kind of day-to-day -day skills to be thinking about, like increasing the frequency of contact in multiple mediums in order to improve your sense of connection with the people around you. So Whereas in a regular, you know, kind of in-person office environment, it might be fine to have a weekly one-on-one -on -one or a monthly one-on-one. -on -one. You might find yourself wanting more frequent contact than that, um, prioritizing, you know, update emails or update texts or Slack engagements more frequently, uh, more frequent, shorter, uh, this kind of, you know, conference, um, video conference meetings. Um, to create more of that sense of contemporaneous connection. And just, show, just showing up. I think that is so important. I mean, you know, in these virtual meetings, the, um, you know, the availability to just camera off you know, not fully present um, in, in the room, if you will. It's a it's just available and we've all done it. But just the, hey, great idea. Thank you for um, thank you for contributing. Those kinds of showing up small things, I think, are helpful. So yeah, making making what's going on behind the curtain transparent. So one of the things, you know, there's like a great statistic that more than 70% of communication is nonverbal. But if you're virtual, it's hard to read body language. It's hard to know exactly what's going on behind the curtain because we're, you know, being filtered through this media mask. So your idea of, you know, like using the chat to say, this is what's going on. You know, this is what my facial expression means. This is what's going on behind the curtain for me to show up and show yourself, I think is, is probably one of the best strategies. I love that. 
Yep. So Deb, I want to, um, I, I pulled a couple listeners and got some questions for you. And largely these are, these are questions that are coming from younger women. Um, I have a couple from, you know, mid-career uh, women as well. I just want to sort of rapid fire uh, some of these to you. So this young woman who is in the field of science, who just recently um, got her PhD and is with a sort of startup science organization, she is still having the problem of being talked over in um, by her male colleagues who might be junior to her in um, their particular level. What should she do? Hmm. Well, I wish I could say that's the first time I've heard that challenge, <laughs> but it is not. And um, so, I, I mean, I think there are there are a bunch of of micro strategies. Um, one strategy is to stand up in the room. Um, just stand up when you're talking and take the floor. I think sometimes it is easy uh, for folks to overrun a quieter voice or a more intellectual voice or a woman's voice. And so physically standing up and asserting the floor is a way of making it very clear of your intention to speak. And it makes it much more uncomfortable for the person sitting across to leap over. A second strategy is to engage in what we sort of think about as empathetic um, amplification. Mm -hmm. And that strategy involves talking to advocates or allies in the room who more easily get the floor and encouraging them to use your name and amplify your point when they can. So an example might be, Lori, I love when you said, I think that's what Lori just said. Lori, were you trying to get into the room using your name and making a space and, and leveraging your allies around the table to help create space? Um, it's also helpful to talk to the person who's in charge of the meeting and to ask them for you know the opportunity for equal participation for all in the dialogue and one way to bring that up without sounding um you know without you know pushing too over, hard over needy <laughs> would be to say you know i would just invite you to to think about how many times we're each contributing in the meeting and see what it looks like to you from your seat and if you see opportunities to help more of us participate that would be great Great. Okay. So another question, which is, I think, a question you've heard a million times, how do I ask for more money? I don't know what I should be making, but I know I want more. How do I ask for it? Yeah. Well, this is an important question and something that um, there's a lot of in the popular media, a lot of great resources out there. So, you know, educate yourself with that. Um, I would you know, something that's available today that ha that wasn't in the past is sort of resources you can use online to understand what the market is willing to pay for your role. So look at Glassdoor, look at Comparably, look at, there are resources out there where you can start to get a feel for what's the appropriate pay range for your role. Um, but most important skill in this space is setting and aligning on expectations with your manager. The answer is always no if you don't ask. Mm -hmm. So the way to ask is to have a conversation about your growth and ambition goals, what you'd like to contribute to the company. You know, what is your objective in terms of the impact you'd like to make? And then as a function of that, what you'd like to earn. 
Yep. So having that conversation with your leader about this is what I'd really like to contribute. Is that something that would be valuable here? Where do you think it could be valuable? What difference do you think that could make? What skills would I need to get there? And what experiences would you be wanting? So we're having this huge connected conversation about growth and contribution. By the way, what, what impact would that have on my salary? I think that is really great advice. And I think also the um, the asking for more needs to be done. So just, just do it. But also it can't be me, 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 me. It has to be what is my impact going to be for the organization and focusing the requests, you know, on that objective makes it easier for the manager, quite frankly, to go make the case. They might not have the um, ultimate decision authority to help out individual employees. This is just great gold advice. I really appreciate it, Deb. As we close out on Inspiring Women, maybe I could just ask you not just like general advice, but more specifically, we are seeing so many mid-career women who are literally just dropping out of the workforce. First, they they have the means to be able to do that, which is wonderful. But for, for women who are in that sort of like mid-stage career, who are thinking about what's next or um, perhaps a, a change, what's your advice to them? Well, I've been doing a lot of reading about successful aging in the last uh, couple of months. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to lead a full life. And I guess my advice is just remember life is long. And the things that in the end bring us the most joy and keep us growing and vital and thriving intellectually, emotionally, spiritually have to do with contribution. You, know, you said earlier that most people, you know, want to contribute at their fullest and be rewarded for it. I think that extends long into life. So the fantasy of not being part of the workforce and suddenly having tons of leisure time and that being enough is actually not played out in the evidence about how happy people are in the latter halves of their lives. So if you're mid-career and you want your career to change, great stewardship of a career where you continue to grow and flourish is important, but don't leave. It's a long life. We're all going to live to be a lot longer than we think. (laughs) And in order for that to be vital and energizing and for us to continue to grow intellectually and emotionally and professionally and spiritually, we got to stay engaged. So find your lane, do something you, you know, hadn't dreamed of doing, figure out how to do uh, what sings to your heart, figure out where you can add your, your very biggest impact and, and make a run at it, but don't, don't leave us. We need, Our, <laughs> we need all of you. Yeah, this has been great. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation. I have been speaking with Deb Bub and Deb. This has been so many great nuggets of advice. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great to have the time with you, Lori. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.